0: A looming disaster for 20 million here in America, and most people haven't heard about it. Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, and I'm pleased to be joined by, I'm going to do my best, Azriana Cadena. Did I get that close? Like 90%? Very close. Very close. Director of the Protecting Immigrant Families Campaign, and Leo Coelho, a research professor at the Georgetown university McCourt School of Public Policy's Center for Children and Families, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Thank you
0: so much. It's a pleasure to have you. I wish we were having you on a more upbeat topic. I didn't want to engage in hyperbole or overreach, but this really does sound like a major problem that most of us haven't heard about. There are the numbers vary, but the estimates go into the 20 million range of people here in America who may be hit by a major gap in health care coverage, which can lead to all kinds of bad outcomes. This is looming ahead of us in the months ahead. Would you help us understand what's about to happen and why?
1: So I'll kick this party off, Matt. And, you know, you probably haven't seen it in the news, but we're right smack in the middle of a historically bad year for Medicaid coverage. We're talking about the Medicaid program. And by the end of the summer, it's estimated that 15 million people or more will have lost their Medicaid health insurance. 15 million is the low estimate. Our count of, at CCF, our count of actual enrollment data shows that 10 million people, including 4 million children, have already lost their coverage. So we are going to go past 15 for sure, and a number like 20 seems more realistic. And it may be hard to make sense of a number like 15 million. So just to put it in context for listeners, 2 million would already be like a record bad year. Uh, so, 15 is just kind of beyond comprehension. As someone who does this work, what this sounds like to me, right? Uh, I, I like to give people this example. Manute Bull was the tallest NBA player ever. He was like seven and a half feet tall. Imagine if somebody broke the record because they were like 56 feet tall. That's how unfathomable the scale of this is. And for our conversation today, let me just make two more simple points. First, As bad as the 15 million number sounds in and of itself or a 20 million or a 24, I haven't told you the worst part, which is that of the, for example, 10 million terminated so far, way more than half, 71% were terminated without a finding that they're actually ineligible. They were terminated due to breakdowns in the re-enrollment process. Paperwork. Paperwork. And those breakdowns are hurting everyone, disproportionately impacting immigrants, meaning that the mass disenrollment is going to devastate immigrant families and communities in particular.
0: Just to read that back to you for a second, three quarters of the 10 million who have already lost coverage, about three quarters, really should have had it. It's just a red tape problem, not you shouldn't get this kind of coverage
1: kind of so here's the only distinction to make that number about almost 3 quarters did not have an eligibility assessment so some of them
0: oh so you don't even know
1: you have no idea some of but these were people who were on the program so most likely they re- remain eligible some number of them may have suddenly gotten a job and had an income increase and happened to be one of the people who didn't submit the paperwork but if we look at Esti- other models that have estimated this about 50 percent of the people terminated will be people who, in fact, are eligible. Before we get into the
0: why is this massive? I mean, 40 million Americans gained health care coverage because of the of the Affordable Care Act. It was, as President Biden put it at the time, a BFD. This was a huge thing for people here in America. And it sounds like we're on the cusp of losing half of that progress. I think it's easy to lose the thread of just how big a deal this is. I called it a disaster at the top of the show. Why is this such a big deal?
2: I think in working with immigrant families at PIF, um, we really see this effect happening on a daily basis. And so what it really means is that children go without being able to get checkups on a regular basis as they should to identify developmental problems. We see it in parents not being able to get care for things such as diabetes or other conditions. We have, for instance, Petra, who is in Texas, my state where I live, who she had Medicaid that she needed, that she was getting injections from migraines, anxiety, asthma. And additionally, she needed to have a, a surgery. And so in the middle of all of this, she lost coverage. And so she isn't able to get the therapies that she needs in order to continue to recover from her surgery. She has called 211 multiple times to try to get re-enrolled and it doesn't get anywhere. And so I think what really the human toll here is there is no avenue for you to get help. And also just feeling unable to actually be able to access something that will save your life. It's I think that when we think about it in terms of our own persons and how some of us who have insurance that work, right? Like we take that for granted. When you don't have that, it creates so many other situations in the household that go from not only the feelings of anxiousness and frustration, but also that you have to choose, right? Do you buy, do you pay a doctor's visit or do you pay your rent? So it creates a lot of economic instability as well. Let's
1: then maybe get to the question of, Why is this happening? So soon after the pandemic began, Congress realized, right, it's not a good idea to have a lot of uninsured people walking around during a pandemic. So One might argue (laughs) not during a pandemic, (laughs) but go on. So Congress passed legislation to lock in Medicaid coverage at the time, meaning that states could not terminate anyone's Medicaid coverage during the pandemic in exchange for which the state's got a pile of extra money to more than pay for the people that they couldn't cut off. But at the very end of 2022, Congress passed legislation to end that continuous coverage requirement and sort of take things back to normal. And that, what's interesting about it is it doesn't end on one day. It's phased out. So if you imagine a state that has a million Medicaid enrollees, over the course of the year, From spring of last year, spring 2023, through summer of this year, so during that sort of year-long period, the state would begin reviewing the eligibility of, let's say, 80,000 people every month so that by the end of this summer, the state will have reviewed the eligibility of all 1 million people. So we're a a little over halfway done with this process of reviews. So that sort of answers the first part of the question, which is why are we reviewing the eligibility of so many people? But it doesn't really answer the second part of the question, which is why are so many people getting terminated? And that boils down to a few factors. I don't know if you want to go into those now. If you want, I'm you happy. You might as to...
0: well lay it on us. I mean, because <laughs> it, it is kind of a burning question. It's like, it seems, this seems bad, right? And so, like, the first why question, if I'm in the audience, is why would you do that? And then, The second why question is like why would anyone do that like why would you even initiate a process this is an unintended thing
1: so no please do so uh, let me try and give it to you the simple what i think is the simplest way to understand it which is what we're talking about here is the medicaid renewal process the states are reviewing eligibility and they go in to renew somebody's eligibility and there are three basic steps to think about the first step the states try and do an auto-renewal based on matching data, right? Like say they look at tax income data. But unfortunately, on average, states are only able to auto-renew one out of every three people. So that means, second, that two out of every three people, right, is going to be sent forms that they have to return. But they are people who have had their enrollment locked in for the last three or four years. So they haven't been doing renewals. And we're talking about a population of lower-income individuals who have a lot of housing instability and particularly had housing instability right during the pandemic. So people have moved in those three or four years, once, twice, five times. And so the renewal paperwork does not get to them. Then third, even when people do get the renewal paperwork, of course, these are long applications. They require you to submit additional documentation supporting things you say in the app application. People don't have reliable assistance to do these applications. So at each process, it's breaking down and millions of people are being terminated, not because there was a finding that they were ineligible, but because for some reason the data match didn't happen or they didn't get the paperwork or they weren't able to return the paperwork and they end up getting cut off.
0: There's a reason that I kind of wanted you to go through that detailed explanation of why this breakdown is occurring, because it illustrates so well why the details matter. For people like me, my background is in kind of the 30,000 foot view, right? Like as a congressional staffer, you think about, okay, let's pass a law and we'll get these people covered and we'll let the people in the agencies figure the rest out. Just make it happen. And That is hard. And all of the details really do matter. People say the devil's in the details. No, the opposite is true. The angel is in the details because there are smart people like you who have to think through every step of the process. How do we make this work? How do we nudge it so that people don't have to figure out reams and reams of paperwork if you've done your taxes, which I hope most of you have at some point, because otherwise you're in trouble. You know how painful this is, how painful it is to navigate on your own so The task of figuring out how do we make it so that isn't a barrier and we get people coverage is it's a huge job. Anyway, I'm shadowboxing against phantoms here because there's no one here making the case that the federal bureaucracy doesn't matter, except for Republicans in Congress. And I've just gotten all political. Let's take a break. We'll be right
2: back. I think you explained it really well, Leo, in terms of like these complexities. And so when you add When you're an immigrant in this country, we are talking that we, there is limited English proficiency, right? First of all, if you are the place where you actually receive the notification and it only comes in English or in only without an additional language, or it only comes in Spanish, you don't know what that information is asking you for. And then you see this long multiple pages of application that you have to redo, resubmit and so, in these applications in particular, ask questions that have to do with everyone in the household. So, if you're a parent and, you're, and the Medicaid is for your child, but it's asking for you as a parent, your immigration status, and your social security number, that's an immediate red flag, right? Because then you're going to be concerned about, well, why do they want this information? Are they going to be sharing it with other agencies? How is this going to impact my immigration status? So it's a deterrent. So we look at language. Is the information being provided in the language that's appropriate for the individual? We look at what information is being asked. While there are toolkits that were created by the federal government for states to use, it doesn't get to the core of information that immigrant families have. And this is really critical because one-fourth of children in the U.S. are in an immigrant family.
0: If you could just say that last statistic again, because it's something we talked about off the air and it was stunning. I'd never heard that before.
2: Yes. One-fourth of children in the U.S. are part of immigrant families.
0: I think we have to deal with the elephant in the room here. We can't talk about immigrant families right now without talking about the major political issue, which is the border and the issue of however you wanna characterize it, illegal immigration, unauthorized immigration. That is where when people hear immigrant, just to be crystal clear here, these are distinct issues. The population that we're talking about here is overwhelmingly US citizens and people who are fully documented to be here.
2: When we talk about the families and the fact that one fourth of children in the US are in immigrant families, we're talking about what we call mixed status families. You don't separate if you're undocumented or you're a legal resident or U.S. citizen. So that means that in a family, we may have one parent who is a legal resident. We may have a parent who is undocumented. And then we have children that are U.S. citizens because they were born here. Um, and then we're talking about families who are also being established here for many years, right? Or even who are recent arrivals. The other thing that's important to note is that we're talking about a, a federal program, Medicaid. In order to be eligible for Medicaid, you need to have, for this particular program, you need to have some form of legal status to be eligible and meet the other requirements. So so when we say it's, that it's children in immigrant families, it could be children whose parents are, who are U.S. citizens and parents are are legal residents or are U.S. citizens themselves. And so, but nonetheless, that they have this relationship with the federal government that is a relationship based on mistrust because of fear of having immigration consequences down the line.
0: The distinction though that I think we're drawing here important thing that you just said in this regard is these are federal programs. So I just want to make sure that when people hear that we're talking about an immigrant population and we're talking about Medicaid and federal benefits We're already talking about people who are supposed to be part of this program, but also these issues are also blended together because while everyone we're talking about losing coverage here should be having coverage, right? We're talking about people who are U.S. citizens by and large. Part of the barrier is the fact that we have mixed families here.
2: The other thing that I just want to point out is that we're not talking about enrolling new people into the program. We are talking about people, about families who are already in Medicaid, who are already eligible, who already filled out an application, who are already screened and gone through the application process. So when we say immigrant families, because yes, they're immigrants, and so they may be legal permanent residents who have been here for many years, they may be naturalized citizens, or they may have or they may have US citizens in their families. So there is that distinction in terms of the fact that it's about children and families and children and individuals who already work in the program. Mm. So it's not extending a benefit to anyone that's new. So these people who are already in the program, who are already qualified are because of the um, administrative constraints that Leo mentioned, are now all of a sudden find themselves without this benefit that they've had for years.
0: Well, that brings me back to, the other piece of the why, right? <laughs> Which is, I forgive me my cynicism, or you don't have to actually forgive me my cynicism. <laughs> I come by it honestly. When I hear Leo go through, well, this could be a lot of unintended consequences. It, it could be like, all right, Congress decided, well, the pandemic, we wanna wind down the pandemic and therefore we don't wanna have, we don't wanna be on a pandemic footing anymore and there's politics that go with that. So we should really wind down this program And one thing leads to another. We didn't really think through the auto enrollment. We didn't really think through the detail of these families are getting this information, but maybe it's going to make them scared for good reason. I hear all of that. And there's a version of this that's, well, it's a lot of unintended consequences. Then there's a version of it that sounds an awful lot like you want to quit the cable company. And it turns out it's a gigantic pain in the ass and that's intentional and You don't have to weigh in necessarily on on this because, again, this is mostly my cynicism. But is the fact that it's so hard to keep these people, many of whom would otherwise qualify to remain in the program, is that truly an unintended consequence here? Or is that potentially by design? Is there a real push to say, well, we kind of want all of these people to be booted out of the program and lose coverage?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think it's a little bit of both things. At the 30,000 level system design, you can start with a basic question of why is it that someone can be eligible, but not enrolled? I mean, that's not an inherent thing in the system. I have been in meetings with people who are from Europe or from South America. And when you say eligible, but enrolled, they do that thing that dogs do when they turn their heads sideways what? and look at you like, huh. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, can, do- can I ask you though, is that the first thing that you say about how we do things in the U
0: S <laughs> that they go to, or is it like every fricking thing? Yeah, it's,
1: it happens a lot of times, <laughs> okay. but Fair most enough. of the time, most of the time they look at you and just say, oh, that's absurd that you have an uninsurance rate of 10 or 12%. But they understand what you're saying to them. When you say eligible but unenrolled, they are fish living in water who you are talking to them about breathing air. And they just don't even understand that. How is that a thing? So we walk around as if eligible but unenrolled is an inherent part of a system and it doesn't even exist in their universe. So start there. That's like, but there are a lot of reasons why this is happening politically and economically, right? You have this old mindset that only a select group of people are worthy, a small and select group of people are worthy and get our precious healthcare, right? And therefore, you have to do a lot of policing about who's in and who's out. And that gets deeply politicized, often through racist assumptions about the people who are applying for coverage. So there's the political side of this. And it's also economic. Medicaid is partially funded by states. It's a shared federal state funding, right? And states are very sensitive to costs, right? So they sort of want the federal dollars to come in and help for the bills that they already have, right? When when a pregnant person shows up at the ER going into labor, right? They want federal dollars to help take care of that birth. But they don't have a strong incentive to get a lot of people enrolled and generate more bills. So there is this deep systemic barrier to getting everyone enrolled, and that makes it hard to rewrite the script or even implement piecemeal suggestions about this eligible but unenrolled problem. It
0: really is a reminder of, we made a fundamental decision, one might say mistake, a hundred years ago That we were going to make health insurance in this country a competitive marketplace and we have rolled on top of that and we've kind of layered policy on top of that and a lot of kludges on top of that especially when it came to the aca which was sort of this frankenstein monster of fixes and it made things better but boy is it complicated. And I, I promise I'm going somewhere that's going to end in a question with this. I promise. I really am. I mean, to your point, Leo, I, when I was working in the state Senate of New Hampshire, one of the things we worked on was Medicaid expansion. And we were talking about trying to cover a whole population that had no other access to healthcare coverage and really no other practical access to health care other than to get that coverage. And the principal political divide, I mean, just candidly, I'd say if there was a Republican case against it, not to sound super partisan about this, but it was, look, we understand that at the beginning, the design of the Affordable Care Act was the federal government was gonna cover 100%, and then it was gonna cover like 98%, and that was gonna wind down. And they thought, you know what? you guys are scamming us. This is a bait and switch. You're going to get us on the hook to sign up for this expanded Medicaid. And then we're going to pay more and more costs over time. We don't want it. And that was the fight. We won that fight. We expanded Medicaid, but you can see the seeds of that kind of argument kind of bearing out in everything you're saying. And you can see the mix of cross incentives when it comes to the state level and even the federal level. Okay. Here's where we get to the question. Given the complexities here, the mixed motivations, the mixed incentives, and the layers of unintended consequences, are there any fixes here? Is there anything that we can do about this at this point? Let's take a break. We'll be right back.
2: I mean, I think that on our end, there are some fixes that can be immediately taken on, that can really be implemented. One of those, for instance, is that states, and every state has a different benefits application when someone enrolls in Medicaid or when they are doing re-enrollment in Medicaid. When we look at it from the perspective of immigrant families, there's very important fixes they can make. One is that they don't ask, if they're already, whatever information they already have, that there are pre-populated forms. So if you have certain information about someone who's in the program, you can pre-populate that form, send it over to, re- to only update the information that. It still needs, that needs to be updated. That includes not continuously asking for social security numbers of someone in the household who is not applying for the benefit. Same thing about asking on immigration status in those applications of people in the household, not applying for the benefit. So that's like one really important fix that could make a big impact on communities that we want to enroll and that are important to enroll in these programs. I think that the other on our end is also ensuring that there's more data. I mean, one of the things that we definitely need, especially because low income communities of color and immigrant communities depend on local organizations to help them get through this process. There are states, for instance, that you know that are doing renewals and are doing enrollments online. So someone has to so if you don't know how to use an app that the state is asking you to download and so forth, how are you gonna get information on notification. So uh, what's important here is that there are resources for these community-based organizations so that they can help people in order to enroll, in order to ask their quest- uh, to answer their questions, et cetera. And then the last thing I'll just say and I'll let Leo chime in is I think the other media fix is to really ensure that there's compliance on language access of these of these Applications that exist, of this information that gets sent out to folks who already enrolled and that need to re-enroll. One of the biggest barriers that we find is that, for instance, simply being able to call for information, being able to call two one one for information about how do I get re-enrolled, people are not even given an option to be able to get that information in another mm-hmm. language other than English. So mm-hmm. those are really some key important things that can be implemented. And can I just
0: ask as a follow up to that, are these fixes, especially the pre-population of information on forms, is that the kind of thing that the Protecting Immigrant Families Coalition needs to advocate for across all 50 states? Is this done at the state level or is this something where you can just go to the feds to deal with
2: it? It's both. It's both. We actually are doing advocacy at the federal level asking CMS to make these recommendations to the states and asking the states to implement these changes. And we're also working at the state level to ensure that, because obviously the federal government is going to say, we want you to do this. States may not do that. So we are also working at the state level to work with state agencies so that they can make these changes as well.
0: And I imagine that, I mean, when I think about the states with the highest number of immigrant families, California, Florida, Texas, New York, New Jersey, you're talking about a mixed bag and therefore of incentives to try to be helpful and achieve a good outcome here.
2: I mean, yes. I mean, like I always talk about Texas because I live in Texas. So based on the political climate in Texas right now, what is the incentive for a state agency to try to make things?
0: I'm sure Greg Abbott is bending over backwards (laughs) to be helpful. Yes, I, I, um,
2: so, but these are, but, you know, yes, I mean, he's obviously not, but I think that these are things that we have to work towards and that at the end of the day, again, we're talking about people who are already in the program and that need a little hand in order to continue being in the program.
0: Well, I guess I want to close out on this. We started this with a stone cold bummer because this topic is a stone cold bummer. And I'm sort of fishing for hope here. I'm not sure you're going to give it to me, but what do you expect to happen
1: over the next few months? And is there hope? Listen, we're having an awful year and nothing is going to change that. We're going to get to the end of the summer and we're going to have a number, something like 20 million people have lost coverage and that, that chart, that course is charted. That's going to happen. And that is going to have very serious, lasting ripple effects for our country, for everybody, but also for immigrant communities in particular. I think the only question left is whether we learn from what we just lived through and make the policy changes needed to solve the problems that were exposed. And so if I can, if I give you the positive here, I think there are going to be a lot of us spending a lot of time on that auto renewal process. Trying to make sure that instead of being unsuccessful two thirds of the time, we are successful two thirds of the time, right? That would literally cut in half the number of people who just got terminated if we were doing that, right? So we're going to be doing, trying to work on that. And that shouldn't be as hard as it might sound because I want you to remember something. When you're reviewing a renewal of someone's application, their date of birth, it doesn't change their immigration status. Does not go from legal permanent Except resident. when I tell
0: people my age, but <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Maybe some of us might start changing it. Yeah. Let's yeah. stipulate that. <laughs> yeah, Their immigration status doesn't go from legal permanent resident to undocumented. The Almost everything stays the same. There's one important thing that changes, which is the household income, right? So we can do more to, to make this process better, including sending people letters saying, hey, Last time we asked, it said your income was $500 a month. Let us know if that's changed and we keep you enrolled. So there are a lot of things we can do through the auto enrollment process to fix it. That is particularly important to, undocu- to immigrants, lawful immigrants because lawful immigrants have a lot of informal employment arrangements that won't show up in a data match. And they're often not in the position to go to their employer and say, hey, give me a letter telling the federal government how much you pay me every month. So. That's a challenge. The second big one, and this is the most hopeful one that I'll close with, is the, it's our big happy story of the last year, which is continuous eligibility. What continuous eligibility means is that instead of cutting off someone's coverage if their income goes up in just one particular month. Under continuous eligibility, you enroll them for a full year and keep them in regardless of what happens. And ironically, we just saw during the pandemic, what happens if you continuously enroll people in Medicaid is enrollment increases because you're not terminating people all the time. Continuous enrollment has been, up until this year, it was an option for states to do it for children. And now it is mandatory for children to do one year of continuous enrollment. And a few states are going further. We have states doing continuous enrollment from age zero to six. We have a few states doing from age six to 18 for, let's say, two-year continuous enrollment. We have states doing a two-year period for adults. We have states doing it for homeless populations. We have states doing it for former foster care youth. We have states doing a year of, of continuous enrollment for people released from prisons. So this is a new trend that's really exciting. I'm hoping it catches on like wildfire. It has the chance of dramatically reducing the number of people dropping out of the system, right? If you go to 2-year continuous eligibility, now instead of you you literally are going to dump half as many people, right? So it would really help mitigate this problem of people who are eligible but unenrolled because you're reviewing their eligibility less frequently. So There are policy solutions that are happening right now that could really make it so that the next pandemic, which hopefully never happens, but the next pandemic situation where we have this kind of a situation, we are disenrolling a very small fraction of people, unlike this time.
0: I want to close out editorializing just a tiny bit here. I was really motivated to tell this story for two reasons. One is the point that we hit a few minutes ago that I really do believe that the angel is in the details. And when you hear discussions like about the Chevron doctrine at the Supreme Court, where basically a right wing Supreme Court is saying we don't want experts, policy experts to make policy. We want the courts to do it. Or we want the blowhards in Congress to determine every last detail, which I will promise you as a former staffer is never going to happen when they say that instead of no, we want policy experts whose job it is to think at this detailed play me the movie level. We want people like Leo (laughs) figuring this out. You should be suspicious. And that's why I don't think it's it's tarring someone to call them a bureaucrat. If you are a bureaucrat in a federal agency, wear that badge with pride because you are doing something good. The Other reason, and this is dragging things back into the politics of it all, is that the motivations really do matter. I am cynical. I don't think this is all unintended consequences, neither at the federal level nor at the state level, where I know for a fact there are a lot of, let's just call them euphemistically mixed motivations, which I hope is fuel for people out there If you care about this, pay attention to your state and local elections. Pay attention to the kinds of people who are going to be designing these kinds of things. We're going to make sure that an immigrant family gets a form in a language that they can understand. Think of my difficulties pronouncing Adriana Cadena's name correctly. (laughs) And if you grew up speaking Spanish or studied it, and that was painful to your ears, imagine the difficulty of someone getting an English-only form, that's their native language. Anyway, okay, that was my editorializing. Adriana, Leo, thank you so much for being on
1: Beyond Politics.
2: Thank you. Thank you for this conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us and for shining a light on this topic. And I encourage everybody to check out the Protected Immigrant Families website where there's a lot more information.